and welcome to episode 35 of the Insecurity Show. This episode, we talk about some of the updates that have been happening in the news for the past couple months, as well as in the laws that are being passed in Canada and the U.S. Visit our website at in-security.org for past episodes, the show notes, and to leave comments. Send us email to feedback at in-security.org or follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. My name's Matt. And I'm Max. Hey, buddy, how's it going? I am doing great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing much better. Thanks for asking. Excellent. That's great news. So what brings you to the show? Oh, I just figured that I would uh, I'd come and chat with you a little bit today. Oh, okay. Um, it's been a like while. Fun. I figured, you know, maybe we... I figured maybe we had some things to catch up on. Yep. Yep. But some things have happened. I don't know if you're aware. Oh, what, what has happened? Things and stuff. Oh, that's a, a deadly combo. A dangerous, mm. dangerous combo. Yep. From an information security standpoint, things have been going crazy. Yeah. Some of the stuff we've covered in the news has actually uh, come back up. I can actually hear the air quotes in your voice. It's come back to haunt us. Not to haunt us, but, you know, progress has been made. You remember that whole um, iCloud breach that we had talked about a while ago? Oh, yeah, with the the, the photographs. Yep. Well, the person who uh, had apparently cracked all of these accounts actually was busted. And he's being charged for hacking into 572 iCloud accounts. I heard about that. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes. I really hope there's valuable takeaways from this, that they strengthen up the security, that they find the flaws that he was able to breach, and then he ends up getting punished for it, but adequately, not that they just try and make an example of him because they need someone to make an example of in this kind of case so that they end up getting a maximum penalty to try and act as a deterrent. Well, apparently Apple did learn some lessons from it and they're instituting other controls in their products, such as uh, requiring biometrics to unlock phones on the new iPhones and actually looking at where the sources come from because this guy had just like wholesale attacked a whole bunch of accounts all from the same IP address. And so they're putting in some operational security there to make sure that if someone's trying to do that, then it sets off alarm bells. Good. I don't know. I guess I really just dislike it when due process is put aside to make an example of somebody as a deterrent. There's been other examples of this, right? So this guy running uh, the Silk Road, he was busted and uh, the judge is actually using him as an example. So he's gotten life in prison. I mean, he did try to murder a couple of guys, put out hits on people. So I guess, you know, he deserves punishment. My understanding of that was that's how he ended up getting caught, something along those lines. No, he, he logged in from places used his real id uh to set up some email accounts and he was able to be tracked back through that okay but you know i think maybe their investigation was kicked more into high gear based on you know the fact that he was trying to murder people right although you know none of the people who he was contacting were actually going to so i guess it's just attempted conspiracy or something like that which doesn't usually end up with a life sentence but i don't know these things me neither i left my law degree in my other podcast there's a couple other news items that we'd covered, such as remember that uh, shell shock vulnerability that was like all the big problem and so many sites were vulnerable to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it turns out that uh, last time we had recapped on that uh, and about was it 30 percent of the vulnerable systems were patched. Well, that pretty much tapered out there. Oh, really? So there's still a ton of sites that are vulnerable to it. Good grief. Which actually leads into the Verizon data breach investigation report. We had covered uh, a while ago. 
just generally talking about, you know, how it's got some good metrics uh, and it brings out some interesting information. Well, the 2015 one came out back in May or something. These people that have, are being compromised have these vulnerabilities that have been out there for a while. So the majority of uh, people who are getting compromised have vulnerabilities in their network environment that are over a year old. So apparently patching problems is an issue. That is pretty ridiculous. Yeah, indeed. Interestingly, uh, the first two weeks after a breach, according to the Verizon Data Breach Investigations report, is uh, you know when everybody's putting in a ton of development effort to uh, reverse engineer the the problem and and come out with you know their exploit for that for that vulnerability. But for the most part, yeah, uh, like. 93% or something like that, if I recall correctly off the top of my head, 93% of the actual people who were breached still had vulnerabilities over a year old. Huh. It goes to show the importance of, uh, of keeping up to date, of keeping updates and patches running. That's true. And speaking of people who are famously bad at keeping uh, software up to date, more and more people are moving over to the new Google Android operating system, uh, but still very small numbers. And you remember last time we had mentioned that i had uh, said that it was probably because there are older phones around and they're just not getting updated and they probably can't run the newest version of the system doesn't this end up being something like because the cell phone carriers have their own layer of software that they have to apply over top of any existing software patch or update that comes out so the manufacturer may have actually provided an update but then it gets rolled out to the carriers. The carriers have to put their cruft onto it. And then at that point, they end up trying to put it out. They just don't see a return on investment on updating those those software packages. Yeah, because the telcos don't have to update it in the case of Android. Then uh, they're just saying, whatever, you stay at that operating system version until you buy a new phone. And it's something Google's looking to remediate over time. Oh, and also the Verizon data breach investigations report said that although there are pieces of malware out for Android and much more than for iPhone. It, it's not having impacts into breaches of corporate data and everything is relying on somebody to install a Trojan horse on their phone, which, you know, hopefully people learn to not do that. That's putting a lot of faith in somewhere that keeps proving itself unreliable. But back to the Android, I was reading the article as of May 5th of 2015 regarding the Android, I guess, fractured operating system problem. And as of May of this year, the most recent version of the Android OS, Lollipop 5.1, was adopted by 0.7% of phone users. And then the latest major release, 5.0 of Lollipop, was still only used by 9%. Right. I thought along those lines, someone else who was making a a really good concerted effort to try and improve the fractured landscape of their operating systems that kind of ties into this story would be Microsoft a little bit with their new release of the Windows 10 coming out. Right. They're they're actually doing something pretty interesting. Do you want to tell us about that? No, I mean, well, you were going to get to it. I just hopped jumped all over what you were saying. So please go ahead. No, no. Apparently, apparently you're so excited to tell us all All right. All right. Yeah, so Microsoft is actually allowing anybody from Windows 7 up, Windows 8, Windows 8.1, to upgrade their operating system within the first year of Windows 10 coming out for free. They're trying to reduce that fractured ecosphere of, of their machines and get to a common level. 
So that's pretty cool. For Microsoft, this is a huge step. Apple has been kind of keeping people up to date in this way. They haven't done it to the degree of free um, as often. I think they have in the past offered free upgrades, but not specific to the full operating system. But then usually what they do is they have it at a ridiculously low price. Actually, if I remember correctly, their newest operating system that they're uh, touting Al Capitan was supposed to be a free upgrade. Oh, okay. I know that they've in the past, they had it around like $30 for some of them, whereas Windows would regularly run upwards of 200. Right. One actual interesting thing about this free operating system upgrade is that Microsoft also said that they'd upgrade pirated versions of their operating system for free. Huh. That is very interesting. Right. They're, they're actually trying to be good net citizens and clean up all of that. They're also probably trying to sell people online services with the new operating system. There are quite a bit of tie-ins to the online services with the new operating system, but that's okay. I still have my old Hotmail address, which works just fine for all of my Microsoft logins. Right, that Windows Live thing. Yeah. While we're talking about Android operating systems, there's also the equivalent of the other side, which is the iPhone logins. One thing that I thought was really interesting is Apple just had their big uh, WWDC conference, which is a developer conference for Apple products. And they usually tout, you know, how magical and amazing their platforms are. Last time they had touted that, you know, of their iPhone products, something like 93% of people were on the newest version of that this time around, they're saying that 83% of uh, Apple iPhones are on the newest version of iOS, which is interesting because now we're starting to see the effect of people saying, hey, my iPhone's good enough, right? I don't need to buy the new one. And Apple's also putting a line in the sand saying these older versions of iPhones can't actually run this newest version of the operating system. Is this the actual cause here or is it more to the fact that some people aren't updating due to hesitancy? I know that in the past when I did have an iPhone, if you upgraded to the latest iOS version on an older phone, you ended up really bogging down the phone. I don't know whether it was an optimization issue that they had on some of the older devices or whether it was more to the point of they want to make it unusable so that you feel more inclined to upgrade. Yeah, that's that's my conspiracy theory version of that as well, right? And it's that, you know, planned obsolescence is a thing. They'll actually migrate to newer stuff and you'll be left in the dust and have to buy the newer, sweeter, different looking iPhone. Well, see, because I always remember at the start of the phone life that it would run great. And then as updates happen and as time passes, the performance seemed to start going down. And so then there would be people that were um, basically just stopping or rolling back. Although I think the official stance is you can't roll back, but people would be rolling back onto previous versions Mm -hmm. just to get that improved performance again. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how different it is from Windows operating systems where you know, after a few years of having your Windows operating system, it seems to act slower and doing a reformat and fresh install seems faster. Or I don't know if such a thing would work for a phone for like just flashing it blank and starting over again, or if it's some of the components within it starting to slow down or what, uh, what the real reason is. But my conspiracy theory was always that, you know, they're just trying to slow down the phone so people upgrade to newer stuff. But there's actually, in this case, a line drawn in the sand where Apple's saying, these older iPhones, these iPhone 4 or whatnot, I don't, I don't know the actual number, so I shouldn't even say it. 
but these older iPhones are not going to receive the newest, latest, greatest operating system. Right. They've never shied away from that in the past. They actually have frequently said, oh, sorry, your product is end of life. Your operating system is end of life. Your device is end of life. You can upgrade to a certain point and then you can't get past it. Right. I always kind of thought it was a gutsy move. Absolutely. But I definitely thought that, you know, with something like a technology company, it does make sense. Um, Mm -hmm. And I felt that that's where, you know, Windows ended up getting bogged down an awful lot for a while with the constant need to keep supporting DOS. Right. I don't think DOS ever bogged down Windows, though. It's just kind of something that was there in the background. No, except that they made it. They had to make it so that like for a long time, I think up until what was it? Ninety eight. It had to keep being based off of DOS until they finally found a way to kind of get it to run in a shell. Yeah, I guess so. And now Microsoft's got that same problem, but with Internet Explorer, right? So they've been sued for including Internet Explorer in the base of Windows for the longest time. And it's something they couldn't get away from, right? And then that's actually caused problems uh, other than just getting sued, right? There's a whole legacy problem where only certain versions of web pages and web applications are compatible with older versions of IE. So what Microsoft's doing is they're actually in the new version of the operating system. So Windows 10, there's a whole new browser that's not IE that is fully swappable. You don't actually require Internet Explorer anymore. And the new version of Internet Explorer, IE 11, has these different compatibility modes in which you can switch to so that you can seamlessly use IE 6 only compatible web application on your IE 11. Right. So this is really good for enterprises that are stuck using old web apps that, uh, and they don't want to have vulnerable workstations out there. So what is some other news that's happened? Well, there's a whole bunch of uh, interesting news. I actually want to do like a little bit of a segment on some of the intelligence gathering stuff and intelligence community. If you think we have time. Let me just play the segment intro music. It's time to talk about intelligence gathering. Doodly do 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 do. All right. So uh, it actually kind of started a while ago. When I was reading uh, the code book, The Science of Secrecy by Simon Singh. It's a really good book. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. You'll find the show notes at in-security.org slash EP035. Within this book, it talks about how, you know, ever since the beginning of writing, it was almost like a secret language. Not everybody could read. There's very few people that could read. So it was only powerful people that could read. So they didn't have to change the message at all to hide it from people. And then when more pe- more people started to be able to read, then they'd have to encrypt the message in one way or shape or form. An envelope that contains the message was you know, good enough to be able to tell if the message had been ripped open for somebody to read the note or not. Um, but governments have always been very interested in the contents of the message to see what people were saying. So the mail system that was around back in the day would often be filtered through these black rooms or uh, very famously in France, the Cabinet Noir, which was King Louis XIII and Louis XIV just made these rooms that would filter all those messages and had hired all these signals intelligence people that would be looking through the notes and reading and eventually, you know, people who wanted to keep secrets or whatever they were talking about private started to encrypt the messages that would go through these black rooms. So the government 
would hire these mathematicians and people good at puzzles to actually perform cryptanalysis on the message and crack what was going through back and forth. And this practice has been with us from the very beginning. More recently in the United States, the National Security Agency and FBI carry on this tradition of having things go through a black room. And they had actually installed devices so that they could eavesdrop on communications that went through uh, the telecommunications carriers, such as AT&T. So they had like an echelon program back in the day where it had like these boxes which would monitor phone conversations for certain keywords and then alert people on that. And there was a room at AT AT&T called room 641A that would uh, tap fiber that was traveling uh, between sites and send it off to the NSA so that they could gather information on this type of communications that was happening. And I don't know if you remember, we talked about Edward Snowden and uh, kind of the disclosures that he had around how much the NSA has been monitoring stuff and the privacy implications of that. Oh yeah, totally. There was actually a very good interview uh, with Edward Snowden by John Oliver, which is not safe for children. So if you're listening to this podcast with your child, don't go off and watch that, but it's on YouTube and it's also going to be linked in the show notes. Yes, it's funny, but it's not, uh, it's also crass, but it does talk about a very interesting thing is that most people don't actually remember who Edward Snowden was or, or the fact that he had disclosed this information about the information collection that uh, the U.S. was doing. And, um, and people didn't really seem to care about the information that was being gathered until he made it personal to them. And I think there's a, a very important lesson in that for information security practitioners is that to relay the information to somebody who's not in information security, you want to actually tailor the message to them in a language that they understand in terms that they care about, right? So many times people report on metrics of systems being patched or unpatched and, you know, that doesn't actually matter to people who don't understand why it's important. But if you can customize the message that this is examples of people that have been compromised through this way, um, you know, we're running this, think of the data that we have on this system. Now you understand why it's important that we patch, right? So in the case of, well, I won't ruin it for you. Just go and listen to it. It's actually quite funny. But then he interviews Edward Snowden and he goes over some of these important points as well as to exactly what Edward Snowden has released in terms of the uh, information collection that's been done. And so enough people who had heard about this message had started to get upset and they really questioned to the government at exactly why they were essentially spying on the communications of citizens, which they're not supposed to be able to do, right? So the government has to abide by uh, the Bill of Rights and not actually invade the privacy of people and allow people to to communicate. But it seems like they're going beyond what they're allowed to do. So right after the World Trade Center attack of 2001, the United States put into place something called the USA Patriot Act. And you'd think that something called the USA Patriot Act was just the USA part is not actually important, but it actually stands for Uniting and strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. 
Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. This is an acronym? Yeah, it is. Even the USA part is an acronym. It doesn't stand for United States of America. Let's let's see if Wikipedia agrees. That's where I'm getting it from. Yep. Booyaka! Title is a 10-letter backronym. Backronym. Hmm. Backronym means you first figure out what the word that you want to use is and then figure out how to fill those letters up. Huh. So the USA Patriot Act gave the NSA a whole bunch of power in to be able, able to... So from my perspective and my job... You know, as a Canadian company, we now had to worry about everything that we were sending over the border, be it physically with a person like in a laptop or in communications to the United States or something that we put into, you know, an outsourced provider that has a data center where their computers and servers are located in the United States. We now had to worry about the fact that the USA Patriot Act allowed them to seize any of these assets and intercept all of this communication to figure out what the contents were. Justifiably a massive problem and a huge concern. Right. So it, it legitimized the cabinet noir that existed all along. One of the parts of the USA Patriot Act that was especially kind of scary was a, a section in it called Section 215. And that allowed the bulk collection of phone data. So this is the metadata that we had talked about beforehand, who communicated to whom, even within the United States, on its own citizens, which was supposed to be protected by the Bill of Rights. There was an interpretation by the FISC, which is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Court. Right. The interpretation of the Section 215 was that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court says that you can you can just collect all this this metadata. Once it became known that that's what they had said, because it was leaked by Edward Snowden, that that's kind of the interpretation that they had. And there was also a uh, Freedom of Information Act. Yes. So there was a Freedom of Information Act filed to say, you know, what is the the finding on, on this section and it was basically yeah we, we can collect everything on anybody and it's perfectly legal so then the aclu actually sued john clapper who was the head of the nsa he's the director of national intelligence through this suit the second courts of appeals who are appealing the decision of the fisa court said basically that's a breach of the constitution and it's not legal. So you actually have to stop it. So it was interesting because that was decided on May 7th of this year. And the act itself was coming up for renewal on June 1st. So earlier this month, there was a whole bunch of people just incredibly upset about it. So one, it was determined that the actual spying on it was unconstitutional and illegal and had to stop. And then the act itself expired. So people didn't renew it. And then they actually signed into law something called the USA Freedom Act. And you think if the USA Patriot Act takes away all this freedom, you know, is the USA Freedom Act also kind of something that's, uh, that's gross and removes liberties as well. But it's actually the opposite. It actually strengthens the I'll, I'll tell you what it means, actually, and then you'll see. So it stands for uniting and strengthening America by fulfilling rights and ending eavesdropping, dragnet collection and online monitoring act. So it gives a lot more control back to citizens and says, basically, all that stuff that you were doing before about this warrantless wiretapping, 
is illegal. You actually have to get a warrant to produce this information. You actually have to go and get the information rather than just having it all at your disposal and relying on people to uh, come by it legally. The telecommunication carriers now have to hold it, retain it, and wait for a warrant to divulge the information on an individual. Pretty good for privacy. It's very good for privacy of people. So while the U.S. is going and strengthening their side, Canada is actually weakening their privacy policy by putting forward something called C-51, which is the Canadian law that is um, allowing the collection the monitoring of information and metadata and allowing it to go directly to the Canadian uh, equivalent of like the CIA. So it's going to uh, CSIS, which stands for the Canadian Securities Intelligence Service. And CSIS is basically, you know, they're the human intelligence group or HUMINT in Canada. So they're basically the, the spies like the CIA or the spies for the US. What it also does is legitimize what CSEC have been doing. And I'm going to start a GoFundMe to get you a louder keyboard. CSEC stands for Communications Security Establishment Canada. And those are like the NSA folks. They're the signals intelligence gathering folk. Again, Kevin Inouye all over again. Um, intercepting all this information. Right. So there's this, there's this interesting dynamic going on where it's like a pendulum that has swung in the States where people have been having their rights and privacy eroded and people have determined, well, we're not really gaining information out of this. At least nothing's been proven to be of value through the information gathered. Right. And everybody was claiming, oh, the terrorists, the terrorists, we got to take away your privacy for the terrorists. And then it's actually coming back around the other way through, you know, some breaches that have happened to the government in the United States, as well as uh, all these advocates and the government being sued over their privacy being taken away. It's coming back around the other way. So Barack Obama, president of the United States, has stated that all government communications have to be encrypted. All website requests have to go out HTTPS over the transport layer security in SSL. So they're forcing all of their employees to have encrypted communications out. The browser manufacturers and the search engines, like Google's been doing it for a while, where they actually protect search results to come back over HTTPS so that somebody can't eavesdrop on what what is searched for. Bing's now going to do that too. All of the browsers are implementing protections where it'll go out for HTTPS first, right? And it's going so far as to say, hey, you can even block just regular HTTP traffic if you want. So there's this big dynamic swing to encrypt communications now. There's tons of people that are putting out products as well in response to what Edward Snowden had released. But I think the more fundamental swing, uh, the more fundamental and important thing is that citizens are really gaining the understanding of why privacy is important to them. And starting to implement these things and it's starting to become a lower bar and more convenient for them. Companies that have been asked to surrender information to the government are actually, you know, pressing on them to supply warrants rather than just giving over the information when asked. Right. Fighting back for the customers that are uh, using their product with the faith that they're doing it in security. 
Right. And, and we've seen, you know, information being leaked out from government agencies to internal threats of actually surrendering information and being bought off by, you know, other organizations. So there's that interesting dynamic. And now just yesterday on the 17th of June, Anonymous, the activist, uh, hacktivist group that originated from 4chan. Yes. Anonymous had a big campaign that was to do a distributed denial of service against any Canadian government website. So anything that ended in governmentofcanada.ca, gc.ca, they were successful in actually shutting down these services from being able to be consumed. You remember a distributed denial of service is many people all over the place requesting a resource and then just overloading the servers and making them not be able to respond to legitimate requests because it's too slow. Right. So, yeah. So, you know, and, and that whole point of that denial of service was specifically against this uh, C-51 bill that was signed into place that was supported by both conservatives. Well, was was the brainchild of the conservative governments and uh, I supposedly reluctantly, but anyway, supported by the liberals as well. Usually those two don't agree on anything in Canada, uh, especially not around uh, monitoring of citizens. And again, it's for the children and because of terrorism and all that stuff. It has nothing to do with the fact that some Canadian government official's wife, he suspects, is cheating on him. (laughs) So he just (laughs) wants to be able to check her phone messages. Right. Now, I mean, with the end of the Patriot Act and its replacement with the Freedom Act which I'm not even going to really go too deep on my comments about why they're getting such ridiculous names. I mean, the FBI admitted that no major cases were ever cracked with the Patriot Act snooping powers. Correct. Why then does this continue to keep getting pushed through? Like, why would the Canadian government then say, well, this other country has decided that like they've they've used this sort of tool and process for a long time and it hasn't made a drastic effect. It hasn't made like huge saves or any, it hasn't got any big wins. Why should we then go and endanger our population security and privacy? It's a great question that I don't have the answer to. Uh, All that I can think of is that information is power, especially now. It always has been. That's why it's been going on for so long. The more the government is aware of what its citizenry is doing, the more it can shape its message to the citizenry. Right. So that's the only thing I can think of. It's unfortunate. The NDP has said that if they get elected, which is like not at all likely, they'll uh, they'll repeal the bill. And uh, famous Canadian law professor Michael Geist has kind of spouted all of these things about how bad C-51 is for the citizenry. Uh, And he's really trying to mobilize people against it. So there are works underway right now to appeal the bill. So it was, it was voted in, but there's still a chance to appeal it and say, this is actually against the charter of rights and freedoms of the Canadian populace, just like they did in the States. Hmm. So hopefully we end up in that situation. There are also potentially a variety of different resources that you can check out online. We'll have a couple of links to some of those as well. And ways that you can uh, make your voice heard and ways that you can potentially take part in the fight. Right. Without disrupting 
people's services through distributed denial of service attacks, which are illegal, hopefully. Yeah, I'm talking about the legitimate ways. Yeah. Speaking of metadata, remember we had talked about Verizon inserting unique identifiers within the metadata of mobile browsers. So for people's on their phones and whatnot. Yeah. So they had to, they had to backtrack and they were, um, you know, there was this big uproar and, and they actually stopped doing that. Right. That they, now they changed to like an opt in thing where if you want more customized ads, then you can, you know, opt in on the Verizon website and then they'll start inserting this uh, unique cookie and you'll get a more enhanced experience, blah, blah, blah. So actually Bell Canada had something similar where they were producing that. And, uh, and there was a big outcry about, well, why are you doing this as well? And they ignored it. And then eventually the, the CRTC in Canada actually banned them from doing that. They said, what you're doing is not right. It's, uh, it goes against the privacy, uh, the privacy rights of, of our citizens, the PIPIDA. And, uh, and you actually have to stop doing that. And the Canadian privacy office was also on, uh, communicating this to, to Bell and then Bell reluctantly stopped, uh, putting in this or, or has to stop putting in this metadata. I don't know if they have done that yet. For our American listeners, the CRTC is the Canadian radio television and telecommunications commission. We're essentially, it's our version of the FCC. Correct. Yeah. So anyways, that's, that's my rant on, uh, you know, the bills in the state of Canada and the U S and you know, what, what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. So as always, what is our takeaway from this as Canadian citizens, both of us have not only the right, but the obligation to potentially speak out about it. Right. Our listeners have the ability to also do that. And again, we will try and provide a couple of different links that we found online for different ways that you can make your voice heard and that you can um, state your support or not support for these legislations and rules that are being put in place. Right. And it's kind of one of those things that we should have been behind earlier on, you know, right. staying informed of what laws are coming up. That's the way when you can really influence your representative as part of parliament and, and get them to convey the message that you know, the people who vote for me are unhappy with this and they will not vote me back into office if I propose to bring this bill forward. Uh, the Canadian law climate is actually kind of tense right now because uh, in Canada, the governing party, when they're in a majority, also have the majority of the votes for laws that are going to be passed. So, you know, really, it's probably something that even the liberals couldn't have stopped, even if they wanted to oppose it. But uh, certainly we can back the people who want to bring this forward as uh, against our charter of freedoms. And then for our neighbors to the south, the same kind of things exist within your legal structure. So keep uh, keep fighting against the, I don't know what the next one's going to be, the USA Super Dupe Hooray America Act. When things are unjust and, and you're being treated like a commodity, whether it's corporations doing it or governments doing it, right? Exercise your rights. If you don't, then they will treat you like a commodity. On that happy note. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Yes, I do. 
What's that? I, I, I enjoyed this as well. Yeah. Maybe we'll do it again. Oh, we should. You know what? Until then, though. Until the yes. next time that we do it. Yes. You should try and have yourself a good week. Hey, thanks, man. I will. And you too. Thank you.